Welcome, everybody. How is everyone doing? What's up? This is Chris Roth with Bushido Squirrel and Terry here with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, lots of more, more coronavirus stuff, as as is usually the case for us. We, we just kind of have that as our thing we do. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about. I mean, presumably, yes, although what it's apparently 13 months until uh, they managed to get everybody in California vaccinated at the current rates, but we'll get to that. Um, we got a little bit to talk about in terms of how the press sometimes is not cooperative and instead decides to act like hall monitors rather than actually acting like the press. Uh, looking at you, NBCLA. Uh, uh, George Gascon has resigned from the DAs. Let's talk about that. We got to talk a little bit about what is going on with that Stop LAPD spying event that we mentioned last week. We're also going to be talking about LAUSD police department cuts, uh, some absolute horse shit going down with the Metro Division in South Los Angeles, and uh, a quick little update about what's going on across the pond, as it were, for Uber. Uh, congratulations to all of the Uber employees who are now employees. Uh, shout out to you, Terry. That is the lower third of your uh, lower third, um, or the lower half rather, if you're lower third, I, I can, I can speak, I promise. Uh, and then we're going to talk briefly uh, at the end, just as a treat about a new assembly bill that I, for one, am particularly excited about. And I know for sure that Scott Frazier is as well. Uh, yeah, but first things first, how's everything going for you, squirrel? Uh, I got really mad when I learned about this thing. So let's talk about that because I'm going to yell about diabetes stuff for a minute. Um, cause right. Give me one second to switch us over. Ha. So Boo. there's this really cool piece of medical technology. It's called a continuous glucose monitor, a CGM. And what it does is it reads your glucose continuously. And like every five minutes, it tells you what your blood sugar is, which is really, really nice because otherwise... What you're relying on is, you know, this fun little contraption where you have, uh, oh, I don't have one in there real, hold on, let me grab one, <laughs> where you have, eh, there we go, we have this fun little stabby thing that, if you can see that, it's it's nice and sharp, and anyways, you, you poke your finger, and you make yourself bleed, and then you use little testing device with a strip in it to tell you what your blood sugar is. And you do that like every couple of hours because you need to know how much mm -hmm. insulin you need to take because your body does not regulate the amount of insulin. And so amongst like lifestyle brands, there's kind of become this idea that you can make your life better if you just have more data about it. And I'll talk a little bit at the end about why this is frustrating, but I want to start off with this tweet from this guy, Lev Naginsky, who uh, tweeted about how he's wearing a CGM and he ate what is a very reasonable meal for somebody and his blood sugar spiked. And when he said his blood sugar spiked, his blood sugar, you can't see the photo there, but his blood sugar spiked up to about 120, 140, which is perfectly fucking normal. Like 120 to 140 is perfectly fine after you eat because your body has excess glucose in it because you just ate a bunch of food and it's in the process of digesting your cells haven't yet taken in all that glucose so your blood sugar is going to be a little bit high and you see that he tags a company in there called levels so let's go over and look at levels twitter uh homepage real quick so the first metabolic fitness company and that's a whole bunch of bullshit words for basically a lifestyle company that's selling you an idea of fitness and health that you don't actually need. And let's look at their slick little marketing page uh, picture here real quick. Your health measured. So what they're essentially doing is they're hooking people up with CGM so that they can just 24-7 
keep a track of all of the numbers in their body, which you don't need to do. Like, even if you have high blood pressure, even if you're at risk for strokes, even if you have, like, COPD or other chronic illnesses, no doctor is telling you you have to chart your progress or your numbers every minute of every second of every day. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. That's not how bodies work. They fluctuate a lot during the day. And what you're looking for is baselines and you want to establish good baselines. And these companies kind of throw that medical advice out the window in favor of giving essentially hypochondriac lifestyle addicts something more to like fret about and think about and also spend a lot of money on. Now, the next company that we're going to talk about, NutriSense, kind of gives up the ghost here. And this is why it really makes me mad. Now, NutriSense, uh, this is their Twitter homepage, which shows all these very like fancy green foods. I'll cut up very nicely. And it says, find out which foods are best for your body with the NutriSense program, a CGM and tracking app and one-to-one -one registered dietitian. This is, again, absolute and utter bullshit. Food is good for your body. Just don't eat a lot of fried food. Don't eat too many fatty foods. Don't eat too much meat. Like, your body is pretty fucking smart. It knows how to regulate itself. It knows what it needs and how to deal with it when you put it put food into it, if you're putting the right foods into it. You know, eat a lot of healthy stuff. Eat, don't eat so much unhealthy stuff. And you'll be pretty much fine for most of your life. But here's where I get really mad. Alex Skrill, who I believe is... Uh, he's an officer in the, the corporation NutriSense, uh, has this like medium post where it says, quote, do I need a medical prescription to purchase a CGM? Quick answer for, for those of you listening. Yes. Yes, you do. It is a medical device. You need a prescription. You cannot just walk into CVS and get one of these off the shelves. You need a doctor's prescription. And so it says his answer is, quote, if you live in the USA or Canada, then yes, you need a medical prescription in order to get a continuous glucose monitor sensor. However, we know it can be burdensome and an expensive process to take time off work in hopes of convincing your doctor to write you a CGM prescription. Because of this, we take care of the medical prescription on our end so there is nothing extra for you to do they're committing medical fraud is what they're saying they're saying Holy you're shit. going to walk into a doctor's office and say hey prescribe me this very expensive piece of technology that i don't fucking need and the doctor's gonna say no you don't need that i'm not writing you that script that's unethical and so nutrisense is saying hey don't worry about it we got doctors on payroll who will write you scripts for medical devices that <sighs> you don't need now to give you a sense of what these things cost a CGM will generally run you, if you've got insurance, about $80 a month and about uh, two to $300 a one-time payment over the year to pay for, like, the setup. They they operate on a sensor that is Bluetooth-enabled that talks to your phone. Like, there's some cool little apps where it just, like, tells you what your blood sugar is. Or they come with their own little, like, handheld device. And then you need to get the sensors that actually, like, has a little catheter that you plug into your waist or into your uh, buttocks or into the back of your arm, anywhere where you have subcutaneous fat, and it takes a reading of your blood sugar. Those sensors cost anywhere from sixty to hundred dollars each, and they each last about a week. So you're going through about three to four of those sensors. You can make them last a little bit longer, but you're going through three or four of them every month at a cost of like sixty dollars per sensor. So if you're paying for this out of pocket, wow. you're paying two hundred fifty dollars for that, and then to get the Bluetooth sensor, those are going to cost you ninety to one hundred and fifty dollars every ninety days because the little battery in them is going to die. That's money that adds up, and that's one reason that a lot of diabetics can't afford this life-saving technology. Having more stable blood sugar uh, readings, having more stable blood sugar levels in your body correlates with better outcomes for a lot of reasons. When you have too much sugar in your blood, your blood actually comes thick and viscous, as thick as grape jelly. 
that begins to break down your capillaries. That begins to kill your nerves. That begins to make you go blind. That begins to kill your organs. And if your blood sugar gets too high, you can go into an acute syndrome called diabetic ketoacidosis, where glucose in your blood is actually acidic. It throws off the pH balance of your body and your body freaks out because it can no longer take up energy. So it begins eating your own muscle and connective tissue and falls into a cascade where you can go into multiple organ failure. And that almost happened to me at the age of 20 when I was really bad at dealing with diabetes. Like I literally almost died from this. They didn't have this technology wow. when I was that young. Now that they've got it, my four-year-old nephew's on it. It is life-saving for him. My sister can watch his blood sugar anywhere he is across the planet with a cell phone. Like he can be at daycare when he could go to daycare and she could see what his blood sugar was all the freaking time. What bothers me about these lifestyle influencer dipshits is that I remember when I was diagnosed, like I was literally diagnosed on my 18th birthday. And the thing that really got me was the, the fundamental understanding, I can't trust my body anymore. Like a fundamental part of my body is broken and I don't get to rely on it. These are people whose bodies work perfectly fine. They can trust their body. They can go and eat a fucking birthday cake and be fine. They don't have to take insulin to cover that. They don't have to check their blood sugar for the next six hours to make sure they don't spike too high. Their body will deal perfectly fine with it. But that's not fucking good enough for them. So instead, what they're doing is using their privilege and their wealth to get access to technology that is life-saving for someone like me, and they're getting all fucking indignant when type 1 diabetics like me get in their faces about their absolute fucking bullshit. So to companies like Level and NutriSense, I hope you go out of fucking business when this dot-com bubble busts because you don't deserve to be in business. You're selling people a fucking lie and committing medical fraud while you're doing it. Like, this is ghoulish, bullshit behavior couched in healthy lifestyleness, and it pisses me off to no fucking end because diabetics like me are fucking dying because we can't afford our insulin. If you're a healthy person with enough money to afford a CGM, take that money and pay for a diabetic to fucking have it. This will literally save a life. This isn't negotiable. This is just basic human shit. And I am really fucking sick of seeing this stuff and seeing the technology that's developed to save people's lives turned into lifestyle devices and luxuries for people who can afford it. So I'm kind of pissed off about that shit. Um, but yeah, Terry, how are you doing? Oh, all right. I mean... Kind of an abrupt change there. Fra <laughs> no, fraud is a hell of a business model. And on that's, that note, uh, uh, Holy shit. You know, uh, well, all of this, you know, constant monitoring. Uh, I mean, you know, Don DeLillo was talking about this in White Noise back in 1985 of the, the continuous surveillance of the body. And Very good book. And it, it is. Uh, and the, the funny thing is that, I mean, for diabetics who have to continuously monitor their, their glucose levels and continuously adjust their insulin levels. Yes, the constant monitoring is critical and, and life-saving. For anybody else, whether it's continuous uh, blood pressure monitoring or, or anything, it, it just adds noise. You're exactly right to say that it's the baseline that the, the physicians care about. And to have this 24-7 uh, data stream actually drowns out the important things. So your doctor is going to get less information, not more. And I think that's just indicative of like our, our techno-utopian fucking you know, Silicon Valley ideology to begin with where the important things are lost in the, in the noise. So we're actually getting, we're actually knowing less uh, because of all this garbage uh, than, than we would otherwise. So yeah, no, I'm doing great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Not freezing too much back there, I hope. No, no, we're, we are finally above freezing. It was great. It was great. Nice. 
Nice. What about you, Chris? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Got to uh, got to help run the uh, LA podcast Jeopardy Jeppod Je- LA Jeppody. I will never be able to say it properly. Um, basically, LA podcast uh, cast the. <laughs> It's impossible to say. The hosts from LA Podcast were on a stream run by K-Town For All that I was doing the technical directing on uh, with Devin Manny as the host. We raised uh, well over $1,000 for LA Can and uh, the Eco Hood project that they are doing. Had Pete White on at the top of the show to talk about uh, what it is that LA Can does, talk about the Eco Hood project, and talk about the fact that the... uh, model and and the the methodology that has been used by the city of Los Angeles to approach affordable housing and supportive housing is fundamentally broken and they just the the costs are ever skyrocketing um that was a ton of fun and uh you know it, it was it was it was a really good show they got they talked they spent a lot of time talking about the uh the FEMA motion uh that was put forward by both Nithya and uh Mike Bonin uh to you know, take advantage of the this federal funding that's available for us that we've had available for almost a month at this point. And Nuri and the rest of the city council, as well as the mayor, are just dragging their heels on this. Um, part of the problem, of course, being that the, the, the state legislation legislature has, you know, millions and millions of dollars that they could easily access and use to, you know, that could allocate to the city of Los Angeles because we have no money. Because uh, they have, because they have a, a several tens of millions, if not hundred million dollar surplus. Like the state's sitting on a huge pile of cash yeah. right now. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of state monies that could be leveraged for this that they're just choosing not to do because uh, the none of, the the council is just not moving on this for some reason. Like Nuri Nuri hasn't even agendized the fucking motion in her COVID uh, the the ad hoc COVID response committee. It's it's absolutely absurd. So anyway, they they spoke about that um, not at length, but like for a, f- a few minutes in the middle. But genuinely, it was a ton of fun. Go check out the video. It's up yeah. on the K Town for All YouTube page. Uh, it's also on Twitch.tv slash K Town for All. If you go look in their po- their past broadcasts, it'll be up there for the next two weeks. Um, it was a ton of fun. Uh, Devin is great at making puns into categories, and I loved it. Uh, I My favorite moment from the show, honestly, was a question about uh, t- the movies that came out in, I believe it was, I don't remember which year, but it was a year back when apparently Devin was nine, which made me feel ancient because I remember that year. I was a teenager, at least. Uh, but they, both Scott and Hayes, Neither of them knew both of the names of the movies, but they happened to both know one of the two movies, and they said them both simultaneously, and it was just priceless. Uh, <laughs> loved it. So anyway, but that's was, how I'm doing. That was a, um, a prelude to something that happened today, right? Yes, it was a prelude to something that happened today. Thank you so much for that segue, Squirrel. You are the professional in the house. So uh, this morning, a bunch of uh, a bunch of local activists, uh, you know. Got, took to the streets uh, up in Sun Valley and brought the show to like literally bringing it like it was a uh, publisher's clearinghouse uh, episode from I've actually never seen that. On I TV. mean, that's I, that's I a throwback to our childhood. It. I'm surprised that it, well, it wasn't a publisher's clearinghouse wasn't like it wasn't a TV show. It was just like a random no. uh, like scam to get you to buy magazines and the off chance that you would win a million dollars. And like a dude in a suit would show up with a big check for you. 
And I remember yeah. it from when I was growing up and thinking that it was the niftiest thing ever and that a big man, a man would show up with a check one day. And uh, lo and behold, giant novelty did. checks. <laughs> Funny how that works. Uh, yeah. So the, the um, you know, we've got Devin Manny right there in the center of it all uh, with the giant novelty check. A uh, couple of quick notes for everybody. I don't know if you can, you probably can't see it in the video stream, but the, um, the routing number at the bottom of the check is actually Nuri's office number. Uh, so if you wanted to call Nuri's office and tell her to take up the FEMA uh, money and move on this shit, uh, it, it, it's, it's right there. They also yeah. have Joe Biden's big ass signature on it with the memo of seize the hotels. Yeah. Uh, made out, of course, it, it's a money made out to uh, unhoused Angelinos for infinity and infinity over 100. Uh, for the dollars. So you got to love it. Uh, quick little video clip of that, and then we'll be moving so on. Beautiful. Come on, Nuri, wake up. It's okay. This is for you. It's all for you. All for you, Nuri. Oh, and Theo is there. That's right. Yeah. I almost forgot. Theo Henderson was there. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's really frustrating protest. because Lhasa dragged their feet on the first project uh, room key, which was like the initial, like not really even seizing hotels, but more coming to a contractual agreement yep. with hotels. And they had a lot of restrictions on it because they didn't want to take a hotel that had less than a hundred units because they said, we don't have enough like caseworkers. We can't have supportive services in there if we're getting hotels that only have 10 or 15 people. But that's kind of a weak sauce argument when you can just hire on more people and know that FEMA is going to reimburse you. And then, Garcetti, during the emergency declaration that we have, can just order the hotel seized. Like, they, they've never had to enter into contracts with hotels. They can no. just compel them to do this. And, like, Knock covered this earlier this year where we charted the, the hotels that have taken big subsidies from the city worth in total over a billion dollars and yet have refused to take any project room key money to house people. And these were all the fancy hotels, the ones in downtown and the ones in Hollywood that have been newly built, the Omnis and the other like absolutely terrible uh, hotel groups. We all said, well, we don't want to put unhoused people in these rooms because then our clientele won't want to stay in them afterwards. And it just, I don't think they're wrong. The like, I don't think the Omni group is, is wrong that like that. their rich clientele yep. would want the hotel burned to the ground and rebuilt if they had to stay in a room that once had an unhoused person. But I also think we don't want those people coming to our city. So who fucking cares? Yeah. Um, the, the whole point here is that as part of his executive authority, the mayor can do that shit. Like, yep. They they looked into it. The, the the lawyers have checked this. You can do it. Shayla Myers from uh, Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles wrote up a whole thing about it and, you know, pointed out that there is plenty of legal justification for the mayor to be able to seize the fucking hotels. And he simply refuses to do so. So thank you very much to our yeah. very, very special boy, uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti. Yeah. For once again, failing utterly to do your job you useless sack of shit well i mean even when um, like mike fuhrer's office has to come out and say no no you totally can do this thing um yeah. like that's when you know like you're just on the wrong side of history like when mike fuhrer is like no like you can do this totally humane thing <laughs> mike fuhrer who loves to prosecute homeless people for all like loves to criminalize homelessness like that's that's like basically his shtick 
in office has been how do I pass like how do I encourage the city council to do more things to criminalize existing on the streets of Los Angeles without shelter? Well, I like, mean, if that's if, been his thing, <laughs> if FEMA was trying to reimburse us for like knockoff iPod chargers, then I think Mike Fear would probably be kind of pissed about it. But <laughs> well, just it just the deep cut. It just shows us that it, it never has been and never you know it was about the money. It's about it's a class warfare yeah. project of criminalizing and invisibilizing our unhoused population. Right? Yep. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. So hopefully we'll see some. Hopefully we'll see some movement on this because I know it's been generating a lot of comments uh, to city council, and hopefully we'll be seeing more movement on it um, as more than a moral victory. Uh, but let's talk about. Um, we're kind of winning the war on COVID finally after a year and a half million people are dead. Hooray, I yeah, guess. I mean, well, the, you know, the, the, the tides are shifting. The death toll reaches 500,000 and uh, Mitch McConnell says, you know, we're at a crossroads. Well, I don't think the crossroads were a little farther back there, you know? Turtles, turtles move very <laughs> slowly, Terry. You have to remember that. These, it, it took Mitch McConnell 20 million years to evolve to where he's at. We can't, we can't rush the guy. Fair, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Um, we could just get, like, I just wish that he was not in any position to have uh, taken the entire last, you know, 11 months to let us do anything about this. But here we are. Uh, yeah, so let's get into the uh, terrible statistics because that's where we're at. Uh, once again, the LA Times graphic is out of date. Sorry. Uh, as of this recording, we are at 3,513,196 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state of California. That's just 45,839, just 45,839 new cases in the past week. Another marked decline, continuing the trend that we saw last week. Uh, we had... 3,723 new cases of the virus statewide yesterday with another 3,593 new cases so far today. This is actually a very reassuring graph to see. Um, I did not expect it to, to, to plummet in, in the way that it has. And I mean, we're still potentially going to be seeing another spike in about a week or so. Um, thanks to the Super Bowl, but maybe not because we're going to talk about some things that are happening. Uh, when it comes to the number of cases by uh, racial group, the uh, Latinx population of the state of California is still massively uh, disproportionately impacted by this with nine point, almost 9.3% uh, of the Latino population in the state having contracted coronavirus. Uh, the black population is a little over 4%, somewhere between 4 and 5. I think it's actually about 4.5%. Uh, white population is right around 4%. Uh, Asian just below that. And uh, the very useful category of other, uh, a little ways below that. So when you look at the positivity, uh, this is important because this means that we're actually getting back into the territory of where the testing regime would suggest we were kind of getting a handle on things. This was the 3% the level uh, that we're about to hit. We're at 3.1%. That's the level at which the state uh, or the city of New York, rather, was considering reopening their public schools. Um, but here's the big thing that's been happening. Our testing regime has plummeted. 
uh, we are down to like our seven day average of number of tests is down to 200,000. This is a number that we haven't seen since the start of December. So we basically have ramped. We went from having almost uh, 350,000 tests uh, per day on a seven day average back at the beginning of January, we dropped off all the way down now to just below 200,000. Again, that's what we were at back at the beginning of December. So um, the vaccine rollout is great, but the testing schedule is a little bit concerning when it comes to actually catching how many people are getting infected. The very reassuring thing, however, is the rate of hospitalization where we are seeing a massive fall off in total hospitalization and a continued decline in intensive care unit usage. So the, the ICU is down to around 2000 beds uh, occupied right now in the state of California. The overall hospitalization for coronavirus is probably in the neighborhood of around 7000, judging by these graphs. Um, the available beds were up to 1816 across the state using the metrics that the Department of Health and the LA Times are reporting. Uh, when it looks like re regionally, or rather what it looks like regionally, uh, the Bay Area has shot back up to 24% availability, surpassing Greater Sacramento, which is stuck at 22.4%, still increasing. Northern California is kind of all over the place, but they're at 33.3%. San Joaquin Valley is edging back up toward the quote-unquote we're not fucked category at 13.0, and Southern California is at 14.8%. Again, we're almost into the we're not quite totally totally fucked category. Um, when we look at the cumulative totals, Lassen is still absolutely leading the way with almost 18% of their county having been infected with coronavirus and confirmed to have been infected, which means probably a whole bunch of people were infected, uh, like probably close to a third or more. Uh, Imperial County not far behind with almost 15%. Kings County at 14.5%, San Bernardino 13.3%, Los Angeles uh, is falling right behind Riverside, Riverside's at 12.1-ish, and we're at 11.7, so hooray for us with the uh, well over a million cases, which we'll get to. But when it the, the really great thing to see here is that that lagging indicator of the number of people dying of this disease uh, has begun to finally drop off. There were 2,382 deaths due to the virus in the, the state of California over the past week, 500 fewer than the week prior. Um, we're at a grand total of 49,496, uh, which is terrifying. Uh, we account for almost 10% of the national total, uh, which actually makes a lot of sense because uh, California has about 10%-ish of the population of the country um, just goes to show though that we didn't handle this any better than anywhere else uh, when it comes right down to it uh, and we in the state we had a lot of ways it, very much so 225 deaths yesterday 155 so far today seven day averages floating around 325 or so uh, hopefully we'll continue to see that go down one last statistic for the state level is that we had uh, we've, we're now up to almost seven and a half million vaccines having been administered in the state. There were 146,515 jabs delivered yesterday, which is a shocking 66,353 fewer than Sunday one week ago. Um, my understanding is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on the squirrel, 
uh, that that is likely due to the fact that Texas was completely frozen over the last week. Yeah. And that delayed a lot of shipments. Well, not just Texas, but the entire Midwest of the country. Um, yes. Michigan was holding several thousand, hundred thousand doses. Uh, Tennessee, Ohio were other places that I heard mentioned. But based on the federal estimates that I was hearing today, six million doses of the vaccine of, of Pfizer and Moderna, wow. the two different vaccines, were held up in shipping. So, like, for, for myself— I was supposed to get vaccinated yesterday, get my second shot of Moderna. That got canceled. I was able to schedule with my healthcare provider, with my healthcare insurance, uh, a, a vaccination for today. That got rescheduled until Friday because of the same supply problem. So now that things are unfrozen, wow, it looks like that's going to be moving forward. But there have been several cases um even unrelated to the the polar vortex that just hit us where LA County just ran out of doses like that's one reason why LA County stopped offering first doses for a while is they wanted to make sure that people could get that second dose within the 3 to 4 week window when it's supposed to be critical to get it now some new research has come out that shows that you can go as far as 6 weeks past that you pretty much have to start the regime all over again and get two doses again uh but it it looks like doses are finally coming and they're kind of getting a handle on it and we'll we'll talk about some other hiccups that we've hit in the vaccination process along the way but it's definitely um you know been about a five to seven day hold on being able to get new vaccines because of this polar vortex gotcha uh, well, so our, our state prison population now, they're looking at around just over 49,000 cumulative cases of COVID-19 across the state. Again, that does not include federal prisons, immigration detention facilities, or local jails. Um, that's shitty. Super, super shitty. Um, moving to Los Angeles, we are up to, oh, the graphic here was out of date a little bit too. Uh, 1,181,403 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in LA as of today, Monday, February 22nd with 1,356 new cases reported yesterday. And uh, clicky, clicky, there we, ooh, I don't know what just happened there. Uh, um, sorry, 1,356 new cases reported yesterday and another 898 so far today. Uh, we've had just, just 13,031 new cases since we last recorded a week ago, which is a continued decline from the week prior. Uh, again, we are seeing a wonderful shape here coming off of that massive surge uh really do love to see this um we're seeing andrea leon grossman is hopping into the chat over on facebook and saying the that there are tons of vaccines being tossed into the garbage due to federal and state guidelines thank you for that link andrea uh we'll be talking about some of that stuff here in a, a little bit uh when it comes to the intensive care and other hospitalizations going on. Uh, LA is continuing the same kind of a trend that we're seeing across the state. Uh, we had a, a maximum hospital hospitalization rate of around 8,000 people. Uh, we are now down to just over 2,000, which is absolutely wonderful to see. Our ICU uh, usage has also dropped down to probably around in the 700 or so range from its peak of around 1800. So you do in fact love to see it folks. Our ICU availability is up to 512, uh, which again, we're thinking that that's probably due to a number of beds being deactivated as part of the, uh, the ramp down process because holy shit, we were stretching our resources to the maximum when it came to just what the, the, the very the very limited supply of healthcare professionals that we had 
in the County of Los Angeles to provide this life-saving and absolutely critical care. Um, when we look at our adjusted case rate and positivity rate and equity index, uh, the only one that's into tier two is the positivity rate. Everything else is still thoroughly up in tier one category with our adjusted case rate at 20, uh, which it needs to drop below seven before we can get into tier two. Uh, our positivity rate again is in tier two. It's at 7.2% in LA County. It needed to dip below 8%, so that's great to see. Uh, it needs to go down below 5% before it can get into tier three, and that moves us into the, I guess, orange category. I don't know what color we're at right now. It's bizarre that they do these color schemes, but whatever. When it comes to the equity index, we have come down significantly. We're down to 10.1. We still need it to go down below 8.0 before we get into tier two. So things are still fucked. They're just slightly less fucked. Um, we are now up to 19,904 deaths in LA County due to the virus 84 yesterday. Uh, we are still continuing to see the seven day average lagging behind, but we are now down to somewhere around 120 deaths per day on, uh, when you factor in the seven day average, mm -hmm. which is really wonderful to see. There were, uh, 809 deaths due to the virus in the last week. Uh, again, that's a marked, de marked decline from the week prior. Um, I mean, and, and on a happier note, we're up to that's like 30 percent of where we were when we were at the, the top of the, the deaths per day when we were hitting like 350 yeah. or so. Um, I don't think we ever crested 400 deaths a day in L.A., but we came very close no. to it. Yes, it was really, really bad. Uh, we're now up to one million one hundred seventy five thousand vaccines. Uh, ooh, actually, I don't know if that number is correct. Uh, I don't know if I updated that one. I apologize. We can just ignore that. Uh, yeah. So coronavirus. We're going to talk some more about more of the bigger picture stuff. So uh, Bushido, we, we, this was this was breaking news for us here. Yeah. Right and this was something. Before... Well, and this was something that you had been talking about on Twitter. Like this is something that you had <laughs> yeah. mentioned and people are like, that's not a thing that's happening. What the hell are you talking about? And uh, lo and behold. <laughs> Now that it's in the venerable LA because, Times, it, it exists. The paper of record. I mean, for LA, it kind of is. Um, no, so th this is this is a thing that I, I got into an argument. People were were talking about the the equity issues and and pointing they were pointing out. Um, I, I got into a thread and replies back and forth with people. Uh, and you bet your ass, I'm definitely going to be linking this and saying, ha ha ha, I was correct, assholes. Um, but yeah, so th there was a thread that was out there talking about the, the, the massive disparity between, I think it was, um, Brentwood versus like, um, I guess Koreatown was the, the example that they had used. And they were talking about the fact that there's just such a much higher, it's almost like, it's like 30%, uh, vaccination rate for Brentwood versus like 7% for Koreatown. Uh, we'll get into the specifics about all of that later. The point here is that there's a massive disparity. And uh, they were trying to explain to me that it was, in fact, due to the fact that there are more doctors and, uh, the, you know, frontline workers who live in Brentwood, which oh, bull doctors, shit. sure. Yeah, um, they were special, special reply people. Um, I'm going to have fun with this. Twitter oh, wait, actually, later. you know what? I've, uh, got the, I've got that website if you need it. Uh, I, I think I have it here, too. Oh, yeah, there one. we go. And there's also a Google yeah, so, Doc that you can check out that somebody put together that allows you to sort these. Um, I'm going to pull that up great. real quick. Uh, because yeah, if you, if you pop it in the chat, I can I can pull it up. Yeah, let me do that. 
but we can we know that the uh, that oh is it just wait is this by it's oh, just by the name the of the city but yeah if you pull up the Google Doc it shows you it's sorted by percentage and so weird little places like uh, unincorporated Bradbury and the city of industry have the highest rates like but they're they're Holy significantly shit. outliers especially the city of industry where like nobody lives um, but then when you look at like Saugus Hills and Canyon Country, which is a pretty wealthy excerpt, 38% of the people there. Cheviot Hills, which is literally the single-family home neighborhood right next to where I live, is sitting at 33.7%. And this is as of like two days ago. Palms, where I live, which is vastly, which is a vast majority renters and the largest collection of rent-controlled housing in the city of Los Angeles, 12%. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. I never would have believed that that would be what's going on here. Um, but yeah, so you can see like, um, so I forget, I guess Brentwood is not actually that high up the list when it comes to these, these count, these areas. Where is it? Brentwood. Oh, they're only at 25%, uh, versus Koreatown is at 9%, which, uh, still holy shit. Yeah. Uh, that's real low. Let's see, actually see where's the, where, oh, Palmdale, unincorporated Pomona is real bad. No, well, and then uh, well, when you but. when you look at places like Linwood, Harbor Gateway, Charter Oak, um, some of like frontline communities, they have almost nobody oh. vaccinated. Like literally less University than five Park people. around USC. Yep, it's f- under six percent around USC. Florence and Firestone. Wow. What's Florence and Firestone? I was just looking at that. Florence and Firestone is sitting at. same thing with central vernon 5.5 percent this is absolutely wild how how disparate the 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 proportion of vaccinations are and lo and behold quote the headline here from the la times vaccine access codes for black and latino communities improperly used in affluent la areas uh quote a california program intended to provide covid19 vaccine availability to people in hard hit uh, make it bigger so people can read it on the stream. Hard-hit communities of color is being misused by outsiders who are grabbing appointments reserved for residents of underserved black and Latino areas. The program to address inequities to, in vaccine distribution relies on special access codes that enable people to make appointments on the My Turn vaccine scheduling website. The codes are provided to community organizations to distribute to people in largely black and Latino communities. But those codes have been also been circulating in group texts and messages among the wealthier work from home set in Los Angeles, the Times has learned. Many of these people are not yet eligible for the vaccine under the state rules. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I was right. Fuck off all you people who are arguing with me on Twitter. Well, and it's, it's uh, frustrating well, because this kind of goes towards what what Andrea was saying on Facebook, where doses are being thrown out because since both Moderna and Pfizer have to be refrigerated pretty cold. Pfizer much colder than Moderna. Yes. Once you thaw them out, you can't refreeze them. You It's a use them or lose them kind of scenario. So at the beginning of the day, the clinic has to decide, like, this is how many slots we have. This is how many doses we're going to open. And they need people to show up and take those slots. So when people are using those access codes, it's not like they can show up and then be turned away by the clinic. That jab is going to go in their arm. And it just sucks because that that spot was not meant for that person. There's uh, uh, the Kedron Clinic in South L.A. has started letting black people who live in the neighborhood literally in through the back door 
because wealthy white people are camping out there the night before to get those doses and the people who live in that community are being boxed out when they need it more and a lot of this is being sold under the same bullshit racist trope that black people just don't like doctors or don't like healthcare that somehow the Tuskegee experiment explains why black people aren't getting vaccinated rather than an understanding that we don't have the medical infrastructure to deliver care to these neighborhoods MLK is the only hospital for all of South Los Angeles all of South Los Angeles if you're in West LA you can go to UCLA you can go to Cedar Sinai you can go to Kaiser you can go to St. John's you can go to California Hospital you can go to UCLA Harbor there are literally a half mm -hmm. dozen hospitals you can get to from Santa Monica from Culver City from Mid City from any of those places yep a much less dense area of the city and a much wealthier and whiter part of the city and like I'm really sick and tired of hearing this bullshit oh, hey, it, it's just that black people, they don't really trust the vaccine. And I have yet to meet a person who doesn't want to get the fucking vaccine. Like, I was out at an encampment yesterday checking someone out and telling people, like, hey, we're working on getting vaccines for people who live in encampments like this. And everyone was very excited to hear that. There aren't people out there who are skeptical of this. There are people who are skeptical of doctors in general, of healthcare in general, because they've been burned by it. But I don't know a single person who said, no, I don't want to get that jab. And it's just really frustrating to keep hearing this, like, weird white supremacist argument that, like, oh, they just don't want the help that's being offered. And that's fucking bullshit. Well, what, Terry? In addition to that, I mean, what's the part that's so frustrating to me is when you combine this with the, the anti-vax movement, right? And you think the mm -hmm. those neighborhoods that where the 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 vaccination rate is so high, it's almost inverse in terms of like their kids being vaccinated for schools, right? Like in in in, in illnesses, Christ. in illnesses where they've uh, we've we've reached herd immunity, and your your kids are getting the vaccine to help other people. Well, they don't want that, right? And this starts across Democrat Republican lines a little bit, where you say like masks help other people, and some people don't want to wear masks or whatever. But when you get a vaccine where it's going to help you individually, you are going to be healthy if you get this vaccine. Well, now they'll they'll stomp over everybody to get it, right? And you know, it's just it's a whole idea of where where people are willing to offload risk onto others, and then where they're going to be as selfish as fucking possible to go make sure that they are going to be okay. And that goes to like Ted Cruz flying off to fucking Cancun. It goes to all these assholes that think that they're just going to you know when the climate crisis hits, they're just going to fly off somewhere else, bunkers, uh, and, you know, <laughs> and get to their bunker, and all of us are going to be screwed. So you know, and then yeah. It's just uh, it's just disgusts me, to be honest. For 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 a, a, a slight bit of levity in all of this, Andrea is reminding me of the story that uh, was circulating this past weekend, uh, where there were Florida women who dressed up as grannies in order to sneak through the coronavirus vaccine queue, and they got caught. Um, like, remember the fires in Brentwood two years ago, and there was that famous story that the LA Times broke that people in Brentwood oh, yeah. had fled their houses but forgotten to call their housekeepers to tell them not to show up at work. And you literally had housekeepers arriving in Ubers and then having to flee minutes later because they would have been trapped by a wildfire. And yep. it's that same Jesus. thought. And when they talk to the homeowners, like, oh, I just didn't think about it. It's like, you didn't fucking think about it? You didn't think about a human being showing up to clean your house that might be on fucking fire? That didn't occur to you? 
And a person who's like in your house every week or every day, like in your most intimate of spaces, it's like that's a person that just doesn't even cross your mind. Truly, truly othering and, and invisibilizing people. Um, but yeah, so th this article that we, we have up here now uh, on the screen, hey, moving a, things along a little bit. Hey, it's in English. Is, uh, this is the follow-up. It's yeah. in English and it's yeah. the follow-up. It's from the New York Times. Uh, so this is basically, you know, from uh, Friday last week talking about, and I, I guess they updated it uh, yesterday. Um, quote, uh, people who have COVID should get single vaccine dose, studies suggest. The subhead, new studies show that one shot of a vaccine can greatly amplify antibody levels in those who have recovered from the coronavirus. So this is basically the, uh, the same story that we were talking about uh, that came out of France last week. Uh, so good on you, Terry, for finding that one and bringing it to our attention. You scooped the New York Times. Well done. Well, yeah. this is actually like, I mean, I, a friend of mine is a, is a school teacher, elementary school teacher in, in the Chicago area, had COVID like right after Christmas. She's in line for a vaccine. I mean, this situation is going to play out over and over and over again where people who have had COVID, well, now, okay, you get them in line for a vaccine, they get one shot and then they're just out of the way. Right. Um, this really, I hope, will will pick up the pace of the vaccinations uh, significantly, given given the number of people that have had COVID, especially in L.A. County. Yeah. And there's I was reading so some research want... also, uh, at least with the Moderna vaccine, uh, two weeks after your first jab, it's 90 percent effective. So, like, when you look at the clinical studies, if you select out the people who caught COVID after the vaccine in those first two weeks, then the the efficacy rate jumps from 52 percent to 90 percent and that's a really really good statistic to be hearing because i know there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily going to be able to follow through on uh their second round of vaccine people forget to do that all the time and that's been something that public health workers have been focusing on a lot how do we make sure people get that second round of shots so um We'll just mention this one briefly here. Terry, you had, you had uh, sent over this link to the article, uh, Dying on the Waitlist by David Strong and Marshall Allen. Uh, you want to talk to everybody briefly about it? We won't go into in too much detail, but just something for people to, to uh, keep on their mind for a reading list if they want to know a little bit more about the human toll that this is taking. Yeah, so there's a, a, a an extremely advanced level of care, the the step above ventilation, being on a ventilator. It's uh, ECMO, uh, extracorporeal uh, membrane oxygenation, which is just it's basically like dialysis, except they're putting oxygen in your blood. They take your blood out, they put oxygen yeah. in it, they put your blood back in. Uh, so there's wait, a limited why, before, number. Before we yeah, go on, go why is that important for COVID patients? Well, that's important for COVID patients because being on a ventilator for too long, uh, your eff the efficacy goes down, uh, all kinds of problems build up, and uh, you know we have people who are who are dying on ventilators because they just can't. Yeah. Uh, well, and because be, because COVID COVID's attacking the the alveoli in your lungs. It's actually attacking the sacs where that that gas exchange happens. So even if you're pumping air into somebody's lungs, their lungs can't convert that that air into oxygen and get that oxygen into the blood. So there's a limited number of these machines out there, uh, and there's no centralized database in California where we can find out where when one's available. Apparently, Arizona's got a centralized database. Uh, Washington, Oregon, I believe, uh, they have 
centralized. You can go and you find out okay, who has beds available. LA, uh, they've got doctors uh, who are starting group chats, right? That's the the technology level that we're at, right? Where we're, you know, hospital says so they have a patient who's going to need one of these. That hospital has to call other hospitals one by one, go through a complex bureaucracy in each case, uh, go try and coordinate with the patient's insurance. Um, their UCLA won't even start a wait list. They say call back in 12 hours because they want people to continue looking elsewhere. And uh, we just have instance after instance of patients who probably would have, uh, you know, would have had a better chance of, of making it had they had this uh, treatment, uh, not being able to get to it. Uh, and there's an LAPD officer who's like made uh, the news uh, because he was, you know, like, uh, shuffled into into one of these early on in the pandemic saved his life uh on and on and on and so it just comes down to you know sort of who you know and 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 luck i guess uh, where what the technology that we need is a google doc you know just something that updates on you know in real time yeah <sighs> we're, so, we're one of the yeah, wealthiest that's... cities on the planet And here we are. Yeah. Um, you want to touch briefly on the uh, the mask situation before we move on? Oh yeah, Terry, you uh, you were uh, you were covering this. Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one too. And and the nice thing about this is that it also is a problem of a of a centralized database, right? Uh, where trying to find find masks, how can we find them? <laughs> and this, <laughs> um, so apparently, right? Like there, we, we say that there's an N95 shortage. Well, in the last hour of the Trump administration, uh, a waiver was granted to this Fort Worth, Texas company to export their N95 mask because they went from making like 700,000 N95s a month to 9 million a month. And and then, then they couldn't find a buyer. They couldn't find anyone to buy these. Uh, it comes down to wow. hospitals not wanting to spend the money. Because the CDC has not updated its guidelines. And so this, we're still operating on this emergency rationing of N95s. And so they say no one but healthcare workers in the hospital setting should wear an N95 mask. Um, and they should be reusing them, right? That's the, the CDC emergency crisis guideline. Well, now we've got masks, but the hospitals aren't encouraged or they have no incentive to buy them. Even though it's it's non healthcare workers who are the ones with the most patient contacts, the custodians, it's uh, you know community health center workers. I mean, these people who are really really getting it right and and, and mass casualties. But the hospital doesn't want to buy it, and so this guy uh, owns this company. He's making nine million masks a month. He says, uh, "I got a buyer. I'm in talks with a hospital, and all they have to do is you know your workers have to come in individually for a 15 minute fit test to make sure that you get a proper seal." The hospital says, no, 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 we're not going to pay for that. We're just uh, going with the 3M masks because the government has waived annual fit testing uh, industry-wide during the pandemic. So it's like, well, we're not going to spend money to have people come in and get fit tested. And the deal fell through, right? And so you have healthcare workers who are screaming. I mean, the title right here, workers cried out for more masks. We have more masks, but the employers won't pay for them. And then you've got uh, grassroots uh, charity groups popping up that are trying to create a centralized database of where you need, you know, who need, what hospitals need what, and nobody knows. So 
you know, even as production has been ramping up, distribution is still a complete shit show. Uh, and the CDC won't update its guidelines to say, no, don't use, don't reuse the fucking mask. Um, and all of this at the same time is we've got counterfeit N95s that are showing up in hospitals. Hospitals, they don't buy sight unseen. They get samples, they cut them open, they send them for tests. And there, there are counterfeits that are actually good enough to be passing these tests. And people, uh, they're, you know, they're finding boxes and boxes and boxes of counterfeit masks in hospital storerooms. And they're confused as shit because the, the counterfeits are so good that when they run tests on them, they don't function that much worse than actual N95s. Which is not a great relief if you're the one who's wearing a counterfeit mask to say, oh, well, it's almost as good. But, yeah. I mean, just this is the world that we are living in. Like, I don't. So, yeah. And so now our, our this guy in Texas can sell N95s abroad uh, if he needs to, which is great. I mean, the guy keep we want him to keep making masks. We just want fucking hospitals in the country to buy them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's wrap up our COVID coverage here real quick. And uh, let's talk about something that uh, Michael Kohlhaas actually broke today uh, where uh, Toolkit ended up With us. Uh, yeah. Ended up uh, getting sent to an NBCLA reporter and then made its way to Mitch O'Farrell's office, uh, just kind of cementing our view that most local media is uh, just stenographers for power. But hey, Chris, how about you take us through this? Yeah, so basically this is from a uh, an email that Ashley Bennett from Ground Game LA sent out to a number of people, including our, our good friends within the organization, uh, apologizing for right now for everybody whose email is up on the screen if they didn't want it, uh, but you're in a CPRA request, so it's all out on Twitter right now anyway. Um, basically, the, the subject line was urgent eviction at Echo Park tomorrow, uh, January 13th. And so this all went out and the uh, email went to a, a number of people in the press and it, it was on the press list. It, it got it sent, um, BCC'd out to them. Uh, and then from there, it was, it was meant as a way, this is a standard thing. When, when there's a, a thing happening, you send out a press advisory, uh, they are then supposed to decide, are they going to cover the event? And if they're going to cover it, then they send... Uh, the camera crew, the reporter, the truck with the dish and the antenna, all that equipment uh, so that they can get it out there and they can be on the scene to cover it. That's how you get uh, the incredible live reporting at a lot of protests is through exactly this mechanism. People don't just like happen upon this. There's coordination behind the scenes. This is how it happens. Fun story. Uh, one of the people who was on that list is uh, John Klemek uh, or Klemak Klemek, I think. Uh, from NBC Universal, uh, NBC LA. In Chris, I, I think it's I think it's pronounced snitch. Sn that that is that is actually uh, that is truly the most uh, accurate pronunciation of his last name. Uh, he promptly forwarded this. This was uh, the, uh, the the next day. He sent it out to uh, uh, to Tony Aranaga. Uh, over at lacity.org. By the way, if you ever want to find staffers in uh, city employment, uh, all you got to do, first name dot last name at lacity.org, bingo, bingo, send them the emails. That's how you get a hold of all the field deputies. Um, 
so this was sent to uh, this. This basically worked its way from Tony then on to uh, Gene Min, uh, Mary Rodriguez, Juan Fergoso, and uh, Hector Vega, and Max Greshwin from all from LA City. Uh, basically, giving them the uh, heads up, including a lot of information here. Uh, about like what is going on, the whole breakdown of like what the demands are from the from the people who are coming out to do an eviction defense in the park, um, all of the information uh, about like the call to action, and all of this information is is meant to be going out, and uh, it was not really meant for the city staff. Uh, but thank you, John from NBC LA, uh, for being a snitch and making sure that. Mitch O'Farrell's office knew all about this action. Yeah. Well, uh, as uh, Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! says, the media is supposed to be the fourth estate, not for the state. (laughs) And yet... (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And that's why I made sure to give credit. Uh, And and this guy is just... uh, He's got that backwards. You know, it's like... They, uh, if you want to be yeah. state media, if you want to be, John, if you want to be state media, go work for NPR. Ah. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, he <laughs> wasn't listening and just caught that. Uh, by the way, uh, this is John from the Streets of Shame series. He actually links the Streets of Shame in his Twitter bio uh, because he is that asshole. Uh, so, yeah, go fuck yourself, John. You sack of shit. Yeah. Um, if John's well watching, done. please please stop watching us, John. Yeah, go away. We we don't we're not talking to you. We don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, but yeah, yeah something so else let's, that uh, was fun. Yeah, let's uh let's uh focus on now. We've got a whole lot of cop stuff uh, that we need to talk about because <laughs> um, the cops have been up to a lot of stuff. But we're gonna start with actually a pretty a pretty decent story uh, coming out of uh, George Gascon and the uh, California uh, District Attorneys Association. So, uh, Chris, let's uh, let's hear about it. Yeah. So the big thing here uh, was that George Gascon he's been he's been uh, he's he's a complicated individual, right? You know, he used to be a police. Uh, was he an officer or was he a, he wasn't a chief, but he was, no, he was a, a high deputy ranking chief. Police. Yeah. He was, he was oh, a deputy, deputy chief, chief in okay. LAPD. Like he was a, he was a big muckety muck. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then he went on to, uh, work as the, uh, the DA up in, uh, San Francisco for a time before coming down here, uh, and has shifted, shall we say on his, uh, his views on incarceration, uh, much to the to the uh, delight of uh, activists on the left, because he actually seems to give a shit about justice at this point in his career, which we like to see. Um, but yeah, so from this article here in LAist, quote, calling any group, uh, quote, sorry, lots of quotes, solely for those willing to tow the, quote, tough on crime line, quote, and God, too many quotes. Sorry. Nested quotes. It's a fun thing. L.A. District Attorney George Gascone resigned today from the California District Attorneys Association. Only one other of the state's 58 DAs has left the group. Reform-minded San Joaquin County District Attorney Tori Salazar left last summer. While Gascone is a Democrat and Salazar is a Republican, both agree that the CDAA, which wields powerful influence in Sacramento, has failed to embrace what they see as much-needed reform in the criminal justice system. Uh, yeah, so th- this is um, 
this is great. And uh, Gascon points out the fact that the uh, the board of directors for the CDAA is all white. Well, uh, shocker there. One of one of the interesting things that I heard about this was the head of the, the CAA came out and said that Gascon was wrong to call them an all-white board after he defeated their only black member, who was Jackie Lacey. And the only thing I could think was, if your only black member is the worst district attorney in the country, <laughs> then you've got bigger problems than George Gascon calling you all white. <laughs> Holy shit, that's priceless. Wow, <laughs> uh, that's pretty. That's pretty incredible. Um, this all comes in the the wake of there's there's a lawsuit between uh, the CDAA. Uh, they the, so the, the rather there's the Los Angeles Association of Deputy District Attorneys that has filed suit uh, intended to derail a bunch of the work that Gascon's office has been doing. Um, the CDAA. Uh, endorsed that uh, position by the Los Angeles Association of Deputy District Attorneys. Man, these are mouthfuls of names, aren't they? Um, the judge uh, ruled in favor of uh, the uh, LAADDA. The, the acronym's not any better. Um, uh, putting some of uh, Gascon's reforms on ice for now. Um, but hopefully those things will start to move forward. That judge in particular is a piece of shit. Um, and is an activist judge in the worst possible way, a, a reactionary activist judge. Uh, and it, it's just truly terrible. But um, I like to see, you know, Gascon showing up and really not just talking the talk, but actually walking the walk. Uh, and uh, we're here for it. Yeah. We're here and, for it. And he's not the only district attorney that's walked away. There was another um, up in Northern California, California, I believe, Contra Costa County. Their district attorney walked away. Uh, from the the CAA also. So this isn't an entirely like popular group, even amongst the law enforcement crowd. And they've made a lot of big missteps. But Gascon has been on the outs with them ever since he helped co-author Prop 47, which was prison realignment Mm -hmm. and really helped start the decarceral moves in the state of California. And hasn't, you know, Prop 47 didn't go far enough, but it was a really, really good start. And that really, really angered the CAA crowd, who are also very buddy-buddy with the district attorneys union, who down here are suing Gascon um, over his move to stop the use of gang enhancements and stuff. And they sort of won that one, but they didn't completely win it, you know. The, the judge's ruling yeah. was that Gascon can't say blanket, you cannot pursue gang enhancements, but what you can do is go on a case-by-case basis and tell prosecutors not to seek those gang enhancements. Um, it's very telling that when the people of Los Angeles County voted overwhelmingly for Gascon and for Measure J, the, the employees of his office rebelled and don't seem to believe that we the citizens of Los Angeles County get a democratic say in how their office is run, even though they're literally public servants whose paychecks are paid mm-hmm. for by our taxes. And that's a real, 100%. like, we know better than you do, even though everything we've been doing for so long has proven so disastrously bad and unsuccessful, and we're bailing this, you know, sinking ship out to the tune of billions of dollars a year. Like, it costs more to keep somebody in prison in California than it does to send someone to Harvard. Well, we're we're not just the taxpayers, right? We're we are the supposed victims that the district attorney's office is representing in court when they talk about, you know, uh, the the quote from the the judge was saying like, you know, Gascon is favoring is favoring criminals instead of 
the victim. So like, you know, we the people are the victims represented in by the district attorney. And, and we're the, the, the victims. Mean, the victims don't have representation in a criminal trial. Like the, the prosecutor is not their de facto attorney. And that's something that's lost on a lot of district attorneys. Yep. Uh, yeah. So right. that, that, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on. So there was a really cool press conference last week. I believe it was last uh, Tuesday morning uh, where yes. stop LAP, stop LAPD, top, stop LAPD spying. There we go. I can, I can say words um, is suing the city of Los Angeles and LAPD to stop their mass surveillance programs. And Chris, you're pretty familiar with this one. Uh, we wanted to report on it last week, but we couldn't because we were under a press embargo. Um, but we get to talk about it this week. Yeah, so and I we mean, don't uh, we're, we don't snitch. Um, we're we're uh, <laughs> fuck you, streets of shame. We're just gonna keep doing that all the time. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but because we're holy shit, we're at over an hour already into this recording. <clears throat> um, we're gonna keep it quick here. So basically, on the 16th of February, defund uh, surveillance campaign from the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition filed a complaint against the city of Los Angeles. Uh, basically, this is all about public records. Like, um, the LAPD's budgets have been just completely inaccessible to all records requests that Stop LAPD Spying has submitted for, like, a long fucking time here. Um, so, quote, starting in June 2020, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition and Free Radicals began requesting records of uh, rec records accounting for LAPD's base budget. After our Public Records Act requests were closed and our follow-up communications ignored, we were left no choice but to file this lawsuit. Um, hell yes, Hamid and everybody over at Stop LAPD Spying, uh, get fucked LAPD. Uh, yeah, that that's the summary. <laughs> Show us the money. All right, let's uh, move there, on to the LA. There's literally no US... transparency on this. It's terrible. <laughs> let's move on to the LAUSD Police Department because our school district has an entire police department, and it is one of the most well-funded yeah. police departments in the state of California. It turns out, uh, famously, a couple of years ago, they got in trouble for trying to buy an armored personnel carrier as well as a couple grenade launchers and assault rifles. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> kindergartners, I guess. Uh, but LAUSD has finally... I think it's the high schoolers, but... Well, <laughs> but LAUSD has finally, <laughs> finally uh, seen the light and made some major, major cuts to their police department. So let's talk about this one, because this is a, a really big win, um, not just for the city in general, but for the kids that are in high school who have been organizing around this for years and are like some just really dynamic, exciting young people who have really made like gotten some major wins in the last couple of years this has been you know a long time coming but in the last year we've seen some real movement on it yeah so this is the organization called students deserve that has really been at the core of this organizing work and they are absolutely fantastic everyone should check them out and support them in every possible way the the quick update here from cbs los angeles's twitter thread on the february 16th was saying update the lausd board of Elect of education has voted to cut 133 positions from the la school police department ban the use of pepper spray on students and divert 25 million in funding from the department to better support black students uh so the article in the la times uh goes into a bit more detail here let me uh pull up my quotes that i pulled out 
Quote, in a major overhaul of the Los Angeles School Police Department, the Board of Education on Tuesday approved a plan that cuts a third of its officers, bans the use of pepper spray on students, and diverts funding to improve the education of black students. The unanimous decision comes after a year-long campaign by student activists and community members to reimagine the school police force, which they maintain disproportionately targets black and Latino children. I don't think it's that they just maintain, it's that they've got the receipts. Uh, continuing from the LA Times, quote, at a total of $36.5 million with $25 million from diverted school police funds and the remaining $11.5 million from next year's school's general fund budget will go toward investing in an achievement plan for black students. The bulk of the funding, $30.1 million, will go toward hiring school climate coaches and other support staff, such as school nurses and counselors. The coaches will be responsible for applying de-escalation strategies for conflict resolution, eliminating racial disparities in school discipline practices, and addressing implicit bias. The task force has also identified 53 schools where more than 200 black students are enrolled and are considered high needs to receive additional funding for staff, including a restorative justice advisor at each site. This, folks, it's huge. is what it's all about. This yeah. is absolutely fucking huge. Direct action gets the goods. Fuck yes, students deserve. Well, and it, it also comes at just as city council is about to enter into a major fight between uh, Nuri Martinez and Eric Garcetti, uh, where mm -hmm. Garcetti promised to spend $250 million uh, in reinvestment in community programs, especially in black and low-income neighborhoods. He has yet to really do that. His, his office's defense is that by using some federal funding as well as like some other money that he scraped together, he's meeting that commitment. Uh, Nuri Martinez and the city council agreed to cut LAPD's budget by $150 million, and it wasn't really a cut. They just sort of like pared back the increase for the year. <laughs> And exactly, then Nuri was exactly. going to take $88 million of that and use it to basically give all of the city council members a chunk of that so that they could spend it in their own community on the programs that they saw as the most important to reinvesting in black communities and in low-income communities. Eric Garcetti vetoed that. City council is going to attempt to override that veto, and it'll be interesting to see what happens because on the heels of a CSP vote last week that was really uh, disappointing for a lot of people, but something that, you know, was a decision made by Hakla more than really by city council. This is a, a decision directly in the hands of city council and could make some major waves and also be a major loss for Eric Garcetti as he enters into this lame duck period. He is like, this is his last term as mayor. He doesn't get a chance to do stuff beyond this. So if he wants to stay in office, he's going to have to go find another office to run for. And it looks like Dianne Feinstein will not be vacating her seat anytime soon. And it doesn't look like Eric oh, Garcetti is going to have a real political career after this one. So this could kind of be his last stand as far as, like, exerting power over city council and telling them, no, no, I actually am the mayor who gets to tell people what to do. But this is going to be a real litmus test to see if city council decides to wrest that power back from the mayor and then actually invest this money in communities, because this is going to be a two-part test, just giving the city council $88 million doesn't guarantee that they're going to spend it correctly. <clears throat> so it's going to be an interesting one to see. Like, I, I think it's going to be a drag down knockout fight and that no matter what happens, there's going to be more work to be done. But we are seeing these votes trending in the right direction and we have to keep the pressure on for stuff like the people's budget and for defunding LAPD because that's what needs to happen now 
On that note, I'm going to make an executive decision because we are deep into this so far. We'll talk about Metro <laughs> Division next week because I do want to spend a significant oh. amount of time talking about Metro Division. But I also uh, need my, my beauty sleep, um, you know, or, or so <laughs> I tell myself. Um, but what I did want to what I did want to hop to real quick to close us out uh, was the last two stories. So let's talk about Uber in the UK, um, which. It seems like a good one, uh, right, Terry? Like this was a this was something we should be happy about, right? This is absolutely something we should be happy about. Uh, the Supreme Court in the UK has just told Uber to go fuck themselves. They are not bringing Prop Twenty Two, uh, and that yeah, their workers are are employees. Uh, they are entitled to minimum wages. They're entitled to holiday pay. They're entitled to breaks. Um, and so the question is, uh, well, and, and the UK and London specifically has had a, a, a long history with Uber. Um, you know, ban- Uber has been banned. Uber has been allowed back. Uh, London is a kind of a unique uh, case because uh, their taxi cab drivers are, I mean, like, highly regulated, educated. Yeah. Highly regulated. Yeah. So uh, this is a, this is definitely a win. And uh whether it becomes uh, an isolated uh, case uh, or if this becomes a, a blueprint that can be uh, exported uh, kind of around the world, uh, yet to be seen. But uh, but this is a win for the for for Uber and for other gig economy workers in in the UK. I mean, the, a lot of uh, Instacart style uh, Deliveroo, which is just such a better name than Instacart. <laughs> um, you know, so a lot of. A lot, a lot of uh, of, of uh, gig economy workers are, are going to benefit from this. Yeah. And a lot of uh, tech tech guys are going to cry. Unfortunately, you know, the UK is, when it comes down to it, a pretty small market and shrinking by the day as the realities of Brexit shrink, you know, kind of set in. But, Chris, there's a story I just put in the chat that I want you to pull up because I really – I want this to become a reality. Um, And this is not related to Uber, but I think it's just amazing that Boris Johnson has proposed to build a giant roundabout. He wants uh, to build basically channels under the the Irish Sea, which is the, you know, the sea between Ireland and the UK. Uh, And under the Isle of Man, he wants to build a giant roundabout. Hold on. Go back to the headline. Yeah, that's the that's the map. I'm trying to get. Everything to hold on. The Daily Mail is a hellish website. It's it is. Go away. Ad. No, I didn't click on that. Go away. Thank this is not the end-to-end yeah, end automation I, I was promised. All right, there we I'm, go. You, you sent it to me at the last moment. Also, it's just like obsessed with making sure that we get close to getting banned by Twitch for having episode, like pictures of women in their underwear. Oh, come on. Stop. No. Oh. Uh. Chris, you're losing right, to the ads. You know it's fine. But so the, the, the headline that I like is Boris Johnson's proposing this huge roundabout, quote, as AIDS dismiss batshit scheme. And I just I feel like that's the evergreen headline for the rest of Boris Johnson's hopefully short tenure in the UK. Um, and, you know, it's good to know that if this crazy giant roundabout under the Isle of Man does get built, at least the Uber drivers I mean, will be negotiating that. Will be doing so while being paid full fair wages and with healthcare protection. So they have the NHS <laughs> over is, there, so it's a little bit different. This is just fucking wild. Like yeah. you've got four different tunnels converging, and there's just a giant loop 
around the Isle of Man. Intersections underground are a bad, bad, bad idea. Don't, 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 don't do this. Traffic planners out there, what the fuck are you thinking? I mean, why would why would you even want to do this? Because you I'm need to get around the, other... the customs schemes, you know? You need to <laughs> He really you know, is. The, the, the EU can't regulate you if you're under the water. There are no laws under the water, Terry. <laughs> anyway, so the, the roundabout the roundabout will be become the uh the the, the foundation for uh, a hyperloop station that uh <laughs> yeah no uh but before uh bring it back down for us real quick here uh terry to to swap back to uh, prop 20 for us in the yeah yeah for us in the united states uh it just gets worse uh, the, you know, uh, Uber drivers are reporting that their, that their wages have gone down. Instacart also, they're reporting that their wages have actually gone down since January when Prop 22 went into effect. Uh, I think they, uh, we but, but certainly Terry, expected this. all of those I, I ads, all of those ads told me that the drivers wanted this. Yeah, they all, they all want, none of them wanted this, of course. Um, and they're, they're getting down to like, you know, $5 an hour, maybe one, one person in this article was, was quoted as saying they, they work 7.30 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night and they're making maybe $100 a day. And that's before gas. That's before insurance. That's before paying the rental car that they have for, through Avis, which is through a oh, deal with Jesus. Uber. Uh-huh. Um, and so they're, uh, they, yeah, the, the title, the, the article headline says it all. I can't keep doing this. Um, they, they just are, they're completely burned out and, and making no money. Yeah. So well, it's something, you one, know, once like, we live in hell and it's something that yeah. even beyond just the, the hourly wages that people are making, which is like well below the $15 minimum wage. And I think there is like a bottom line where they have to be making at least $5 an hour under California law, but the wages have drifted down as their tips have also drifted down and your ability to get tips. And we've talked about this a couple of times before where your ability to get tips that you're given by customers is actually mediated by your rating on the app. So if you have five stars and you get like a $6 tip, you get to keep the vast majority of that. But if you have like a 3.5 star rating, they may not let you keep any of your tip, even though the tip was literally given to you. It doesn't get booked as revenue to you. It has to pass through the company's hands, and they're the ones that decide whether or not you get that tip. And it's it's just this absolute abuse of the people who are delivering these really essential services during a pandemic where a lot of people can't leave the house, and a lot of people are just being crushed further and further. And people are – there was a, a story I was reading from um, – I believe West Valley people talking about a woman who's been delivering for Instacart and DoorDash and other services while living out of her car. And I can't imagine Mm. what a nightmare that is because she's not making enough money to afford housing stability. She's not making enough money where she can get regular showers, which stops her from being able to apply for regular jobs or to be able to dress up for a job interview. And it becomes this crushing cycle of poverty where these tech giants are making 
gangbusters money. Like we're in a massive tech bubble right now and all of these companies keep bringing in more rounds of investor funding and getting ready for these IPOs. And once that IPO happens, it's just a pump and dump scheme. You know, once they're able to cash that out and once they're able to get some value off those options, the executives don't have to care anymore. The, the you know, actual stability of that stock doesn't matter. And that company is now just looking for a buyout so they can cash out a second time. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, and you're absolutely right to, to focus the attention on other uh, other services too, right? I mean, Uber grabs the headlines, but uh, mm -hmm. Instacart uh, is keeping the people fed. Uh, keeping grocery stores in business, DoorDash, yeah, okay, maybe maybe takeout uh, seems like a, a luxury, but uh, restaurants are surviving on takeout. And if they didn't have DoorDash or they didn't have these other uh, delivery services to be able to uh, get their food into people's homes and people able to stay home to, during the pandemic, I mean, these are essential, absolutely essential services. I mean, they deserve everything that we could possibly give them, and and we. Uh, gave him prop 22 yeah. and a lot the of only, drivers the only silver lining oh go ahead chris hmm? i was just gonna say the only silver lining with this is that um by passing prop 22 here in california it's going to be virtually impossible for these gigantic tech companies to gaslight voters in other states quite as effectively as they were able to gaslight voters here in california i mean there it's... was not I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm I'm more skeptical on it from what I've heard. Fair. As, like the day after Prop 22 passed, companies like DoorDash started hiring organizers in places like Colorado, in oh, Chicago. Jesus. They started already lobbying state government to try and get those laws through the legislature, and if not through the legislature, to get them through the ballot box. Like these companies have mm -hmm. literally unlimited money that they can spend on this because for them. If yeah. they don't get these laws passed, they will go out of business. There's no way for these companies to ever, ever, ever be profitable. And especially when it comes to Uber, like Uber's own business plan says the only way they could ever be profitable over the long term is if they kill all public transit in all the markets that they're working in. So either A, they have to shrink down and only focus on lucrative markets, or they have to expand and strangle out all other competition. And like, as we're Jesus. getting out of this pandemic, you know, my least favorite bit of sidewalk litter is showing up again, and that's the fucking scooters. They're all over the place mm. again, and they're not getting as much use as they, they did, but, like, you see people loading them into and out of their cars, doing the whole, like, recharging them, making sure that they're upkept, because the way that that economy actually works is that, like, automated service is run on the backs of workers who get paid per vehicle they service, charge, and return. And so you have this weird cutthroat competition between basically between workers because you're rushing to get the scooters that you serviced into the right areas so they get used the right amount so that you can pick it up again, service it, charge it, and return it. And if your scooters aren't getting used enough and they're not getting their battery run out or they're not needing maintenance, then you're not getting paid. You know, these aren't hourly workers. These are people who are scraping by one scooter at a time. And it's a really vicious and ridiculous cycle. I know... You know, at my last place, when I used to walk to the bus stop in the morning or walk to the train station in the morning, I would walk by a, a place full of storage units. And at least one of those units was just full of bird scooters. And there was like an operation of two guys who would just charge and hold scooters there and roll them out. And that was their whole business operation. Um, and I can't imagine that it's very easy to afford a large storage unit like that because you're paying as much per square foot for storage in L.A. as you do for an apartment. 
Yep. But let's move on to our last story. And this, Chris, is uh, one that, that made you very happy and made me very, very sad as a, as a golfer. Um, you know, one of my <laughs> one of my favorite movies being The Big Lebowski. I, I am definitely a golfer. Um, but uh, let's talk about what's uh, what's going on here and uh, why Bob Hope is probably rolling over in his grave. Uh, go fuck yourself, Bob Hope. Uh, yeah. So this this is uh, AB six seventy two. Uh, which was introduced by uh, Christina Garcia. Uh, the title of the bill is Golf Courses, Open Space, and Affordable Housing. Um, the, <laughs> the, the, the key part here is uh, the stuff that's not on screen, but let's get to it. Uh, quote, it is the intent of the legislature to enact subsequent legislation that would enable the use of underutilized golf courses for open space and affordable housing. Uh, shout out Scott Frazier. I sh- am sure that you are just as excited about this as I am. Let's seize those fucking golf courses and turn them into parks and housing. Uh, this is just great. So this is from this, this- Alex Amadeo, uh, who is a public transit or advocate over at Metro. Uh, she is apparently a golf course enemy and you do love to see it <laughs> or they are sorry. Uh, a golf course enemy, and you do love to see it. So thank you, Alex, for doing that wonderful job. Uh, You're amazing. Um, The fact that you had to do a double take when you saw that in the the legislative text says it all. Terry? Well, this is going to be real easy because uh, after Donald Trump, we all hate golf. So it's just going to be just one. This is going to be one after another, just the removal of, of all of it. That's fantastic. Uh, oh, actually, there is one other thing that we should talk about uh, briefly here. Uh, thank you to the uh, Hughes Media Group uh, for this little article uh, that uh, you sent over to me. Oh, Squirrel. geez. You know what? Let's let's talk about that one next week, actually, because that one's a real. Okay. That's a that's a tangled web. I kind of want to I, I want to chat about that one a little bit more than the, the time we've got. Fair enough. Fair enough. We yeah. we don't we don't need to go into the details on it then. Whoo! All right. Well, we've this got some a... we got some pretty cool stuff coming up this week, Chris. So uh, I think uh, Wednesday we've got something really big and exciting happening. We do, and it would be really great if I had uh, loaded up the graphic ahead of time, but I hadn't, and I'm doing it right now because, bam! There we go. Uh, there is a protest going on on Wednesday, February 24th at 3 p.m. 1313 West 8th Street. This is in front of the ACLU SoCal uh, in Los Angeles, just on the uh, west side of the 110 freeway on 8th Street. Um, This is a BLM protest demanding that the city fund services, not police. This is calling for an end to police associations. Uh, The police associations are not unions, in case you didn't know. Uh, The image on this flyer is the beautiful mural that was painted on the front of the ACLU uh, office building, which coincidentally is across the street from the headquarters of the Los Angeles Police Protective League's office. So the cop not union is across the street from the ACLU. Ironic. Um, (laughs) And now uh, the cops get to see this lovely mural saying that they can go fuck themselves every time that they walk out of those front doors yep. uh, show up, wear a double mask, be socially distanced uh, participate in uh, a call for justice here and uh, demand that uh, we get the money that we need for services not for police. So that yep. is again Wednesday, February 3rd, 3pm uh, or Wednesday, February 24th sorry, at 3pm, 1313 West 8th Street 
downtown-ish Los Angeles. And, and also, you know, stop the police associations from exercising all the outsized political power that they do. Yes. Remember, the district attorneys uh, had to go before the California State Bar and defend their ability to take police union money. And I believe that they won that one with the bar deciding, no, no, it's okay because y'all are friendly with the cops. And... It just cuts back against the idea that prosecutors are neutral or objective or operating in the community's interest when they're clearly operating in the police's interest. 100%. See, 100%. Um, and so something else that's going on tomorrow morning, right when this, uh, pro- when this podcast is released, is the Los Angeles Police Commission uh, civilian... Uh, LAPC. LAPC. Um, the Los Angeles Police Commission. Yep. There you uh, go. They... they they will be uh, having their, their weekly meeting. Uh, go check out at uh, LAPC Fails on Twitter for information about what is going on there. Get involved in those uh, weekly meetings. Uh, join the calls for justice, uh, calls for com- police accountability, and um, make Steve, Steve Soboroff very mad. Uh, it's a great way to start your Tuesday. If you don't want to do that, you can tune in with me at 10 a.m. Uh, I will be back once again doing more live tweets. Um, I think that we'll be we'll continue to try this uh, this you know buddy system for 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 uh, the live tweets. Uh, I'm I'm hoping that I'll get the audio fixed up properly this time around so we can actually talk and hear what's going on with the city council at the same time. Uh, hooray for uh, some software issues. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of what's going on this week. Oh, and uh, of course, we've got Belta Louder for the people in the back that Squirrel and I will be doing on Friday. We we missed last week because there was just way too much going on. And we were uh, the meeting that I was in did not end until like right when we were supposed to start doing the podcast. So that didn't happen. We will be back this Friday uh, at uh, are we doing seven or eight, Squirrel? Uh, eight. Uh... Eight. Is it eight? I think no, it's, it's seven. Seven? Seven. I yeah, it's seven. Well, it's it's on the flyer. We'll put it out there. It's, it's been here. a long, it's been um, a long Monday, folks. <laughs> yes, it has. But then also, uh, yeah. also don't forget to join us on March third. We're going to be having a uh, knock yes. at night. Like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we've mentioned we're we're doing this uh, monthly now. So we're going to be talking about the one year anniversary of COVID here in Los Angeles. Uh, what it's meant for mutual aid projects, for electoral projects, for health projects, for people living on the street. We're going to have some great guests uh, from Nithya Raman's office, from LA Can, from GGLA's uh, youth cohort, uh, as well as a couple other guests that we're still dialing in. Uh, it sounds like Eleanor, who did an amazing job hosting her first time, is going to be joined by Rachel uh, Ben Mencham, and it's going to be a really fun, really powerful night, um, and I'm super excited for it. So um, hopefully we're going to be able to deliver more of this really in-depth, well-researched, really hard-hitting content, because it, just trying to do this like is a weekly show, running on all volunteer powers, a, a huge, huge lift. But also a chance for me to say, if you too would like to do this kind of fun stuff. Ground Game LA always has an open-door policy. We're always looking for people to join. Hit us up. Hit up info at groundgamela.org. Or if you just want to find out about all of the cool events that we've got going on, head over to bit.ly slash gggeventscal. Get that loaded up into your Google Calendar. We update that every week. We actually update it multiple times a week. We've got lots of fun stuff there. Zoom meetings you can tune into, public meetings you can tune into, lots of actions, other fun events, and then hopefully as we move towards everyone getting vaccinated, we'll have some uh, IRL events where we can actually see each other and maybe like do some karaoke and stuff, and that'll be 
That'll be crazy. Oh, God, I miss it. I miss it so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, Terry, you got anything? No, oh, that's it for me. <laughs> All right. Well, as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to be taking part in publicizing or just being made aware of, send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or over on the social medias at, uh, at Ground Game LA on both Instagram and on Twitter, the evil bird site that we are all hopelessly addicted to, except for you, Terry. You crazy, crazy, brilliant person for deciding. It's just cold turkey. You, you just got to do it. My mental health has never been <laughs> well better. Done. That's not true. But <laughs> We still live in hell. Um, yeah, this podcast is, and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. You can support our work over on Patreon at patreon.com slash knock underscore LA. You can check the description of this podcast for links to sources, uh, the actions, and social media links uh, as usual. So uh, with that, thank you very much for tuning in. And Squirrel, yep. do you have any closing comments? Uh, no. Uh, keep uh, tuning in to City Council. And uh, also, we've got a really <laughs> exciting Mellow Act thing coming up, um, which yeah. is on the, the events calendar. So make sure to check that out. There's going to be a lot of exciting stuff happening. Uh, Ayanna Presley and other representatives introduced the National Jobs Guarantee, something that People's Action has been working on for a long long while uh so please please stay out there keep doing the work keep fighting we will catch y'all next week stay safe everybody thanks for tuning in